The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and of spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4, verse 12. Every word of God is tried or pure. He is a shield unto them who put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his word, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Proverbs 30, 5 and 6. Didn't Peter say in 1 Peter 3, 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. Oh, 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Oh, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Didn't Paul say, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Jesus said, But sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. John 17, 17. So then we're told to study this book. Right. Didn't Paul say something like that? 2 Timothy 2, 15. Study, give diligence uh, to show thyself approved unto God, a workman, the need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling aright the word of truth. As was given in our scripture a moment ago, all scripture, every scripture given by inspiration of God, as we pointed out this morning, literally God breathed. Profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, you name it, it has it, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly, that's totally, completely, thoroughly, furnished unto some, a goodly portion, most, Almost all? No, no. Every good work. Isn't that marvelous? And these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. These who? These Bereans. Acts 17, verse 11, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and they searched the scriptures daily, whether these things were so. Friends, in obedience to God, we're to give diligence in reading and studying this word, this spiritual food without which man cannot live. But then someone comes along, and in their study of God's word, they come up against a requirement that they don't really see any sense in it. Or they feel could be accomplished better another way, or just simply appears to be irrelevant to the case. I mean, their service to the Lord wouldn't necessarily involve this since they're unable to see any purpose of its requirement or consequence of its performance. So they just laid aside. Friends, they haven't obeyed God. They haven't done one thing God said. You see, when you come to a point where your opinion and God's word differ and his requirement come in conflict, that is, you follow your own opinion, friend, you haven't been obeying God. You've just been doing that which you thought to be convenient or maybe not convenient because as a religious person you thought that was the right thing to do. You don't obey the Lord by accident. And friends, there are some things in the, or believed and practiced in the religious world generally that are simply not enough. For instance, it's not enough to be good morally, as was that rich young ruler. You remember in Matthew chapter 19, 16 through 20, you recall? And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, that is, God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt not steal. 
Thou shalt not do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and mother. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now the young man said, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Now that's remarkable. And I recall Mark's account says that the Lord looked at him and loved him. I mean, here's an unusual young man. All these things have I kept from my youth up, he says. He wasn't a fornicator. He wasn't a covetous person as such. He loved his parents. He didn't bear false witness, dealt justly with his fellow man. Isn't that amazing? Fine young man. Jesus said, well, that's it. You've got it made. There's nothing more to do. No, he didn't say that. You see, this young fellow had a problem with his possessions, and the Lord knew what his problem was. Jesus said unto him, verse 21, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. You know, as far as matching character with this young fellow, it'd be difficult. I mean, as far as conduct, that is. I mean, here's an upstanding, fine, unusual, well-behaved, high moral, high-principled young man. But he's lost. You see, the religious world today while it does not specifically say, it generally believes that if you're good morally, then ultimately you'll be justified. And we've heard comments on occasion that go something like this. Well, if so-and-so doesn't get to heaven, then nobody's going. And that statement's based on the fact that so-and-so was a good person. And, of course, we need to appreciate goodness in everyone. Sure, there's no question. But someone else comes along and says, well, some of the finest people I've known... And then they automatically conclude on that basis that they're accepted of God and going to heaven. Friends, you'll observe that in the very nature of the case that God nowhere predicated the salvation of your soul upon your goodness. Because that doesn't touch the problem of human alienation from God. You see, man fell from the relationship once sustained. Romans 5, 12, worse through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. For death hath passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. You see, from the fall until the end of time, the only possible means of restoring the conciliatory relationship of man with God is through a redeemer. Talked about that this morning. As the old saying goes, you cannot lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. Thus defying the law of gravity. Friend, that can't be done. But there's absolutely no possible way you can lift yourself up into a divine presence except without the application of the blood of Christ. Can't be done. Well, someone says, I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. Or, I, don't, I don't use foul language. I don't bear false witness. I, I love my wife and children. I'm neighborly. I'm an honest person. I try to help others. Friend, that's fine. That's wonderful. We need more of that. It would be a wonderful thing if more people in this world were so upright and honorable and morally accountable. That would be wonderful indeed. But you see, you're not going to be saved on that basis. The only way you can be saved is in the cleansing efficacy, that word is simply meaning effective, the cleansing efficacy of the blood of man's Redeemer, Jesus Christ. God does not save you because you're good. Oh, he requires of those who would walk with Christ a Christ-likeness that would exhibit goodness in the very 
sense of the ultimate sense of the term, there's no question about that. It's a basic requirement of those who walk with the good shepherd. But it's not the basis of man's salvation. Didn't Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount there in Matthew seven twenty one, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven? Just being morally good won't save your soul. You have to be cleansed in the blood of Christ through baptism, as we see in Galatians 3, 26 and 27, Mark 16, 16. You're all familiar with that? Uh, you know, then being added to the Lord's church, Acts 2, 47, which is his body, Colossians 1, 18, of which there's just one, Ephesians 4, 4. He said, upon this rock, I'll build my churches. No, church, singular. And then in walk in harmony with his instruction. But let me suggest something else in which the world has great confidence in that is simply inadequate, and that's a good conscience. A good conscience. On occasion, people have been known to say, well, I rested really good last night. Nothing bothered my conscience. Friend, that's fine. That's good. We ought not burden our consciences. We ought not lose sleep because of a conscience that won't let us turn loose and relax. We, we need not place that kind of problem within our hearts. The Lord made it possible for us to avoid such. However, just being able to get a good night's sleep because you have a good conscience doesn't mean you're pleasing in the sight of God. Paul said in Acts twenty four sixteen, and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. That's marvelous. Doesn't that speak volumes of the character of that great apostle? Isn't that wonderful resolve I have and I will exercise myself, that is to exert every power subject to me to have a conscience void of offense toward God and man? Did you know that the mother who throws her baby to the crocodile, as was an ancient Egyptian idolatrous custom, because of some idol god she serves and it says it must be thrown to this filthy reptile? Did you know that the mother throws her baby to crocodile can say the same thing as Paul? You see, the mother has a good conscience. Otherwise, nothing in this world can make her do it. You could threaten to take her life, but you could make her throw her baby to a crocodile. You see, it's a matter of conscience. That's why she does it. She's worshiping this idol God in her belief. This is his requirement. Firstborn, fed to a cro crocodile. She can say the same thing the Apostle Paul said. That is, I'm doing what I believe with all my heart and soul, what I believe to be right. That'll give you a good conscience. Every time. But friend, it won't save your soul. It won't even make you right. Acts 23, verse 1. Men and brethren, I lived in all good conscience before God until this day. What's that? What about this fellow Saul that later became Paul? You remember the last words of Stephen ever, ever uttered in Acts 7, verse 60? Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And they stoned that man to death, calling on the name of the Lord. And the first statement there in Acts chapter 8 is that Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen. In verse 3, he's making havoc of the church. But he also said in Acts 26, verse 9 through 10, I verily thought within myself I ought to do many things, many things, 
contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints that I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. Wait a minute, Paul. What are you talking about? What do you mean? Exactly what he said. Just what he said. Everything he could, contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Why would he do that? Because that's what he thought he ought to do. That will give you a good conscience. <coughs> Doing what you think you ought to do will give you a clear conscience. But see, you and I need to understand what God would have us to do. And establish a conscience on that basis. We all have consciences. God put that thing there. And that's a peculiarity to man. He put that conscience there. And it needs to be maintained in purity. But the fact that I simply have a pure conscience does not mean that I'm pleasing in the sight of God. As a matter of fact, I may be doing everything counter to the will of God and still say with Paul, I've lived in all good conscience before God and man until this day. So conscience is not a safe guide. You see, you need first of all to determine what the Lord would have you do and then on that basis establish a course in life that will not willfully violate your conscience. The Lord is our only safe guide. He is the good shepherd. He it is who calls the sheep by name. What do he say? Oh, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish and no man shall snatch them out of my hand. Uh, John 10, 27, 28. And if I make up my mind, I'm going to do that to the very best of my ability. To walk in the footsteps of the Lord. To read his word. I can maintain a good conscience in doing the right thing. That's what we must do. Peter said... The like figure wherein to baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter 3, verse 21. You see, God made provision for the salvation of sinners, which involved, of course, the death, burial, subsequent resurrection of his dear son. In my response to the requirements upon which he accepts me, I exercise a good conscience. I believe what the Lord said. I do in accordance with that will. That will give you good conscience. So then the heart and mind need to understand the basis of acceptability with God and to resolve to do only that. God put that conscience there. It needs to be properly trained and maintained. So you see, just having good conscience is not enough. It won't save your soul. But there's, let me suggest something else that's inadequate. That is simply not enough. And that is to hear the word of God. Friends, I firmly believe there are some in the Lord's church today that have become gospel hardened. Sermons are preached. Subjects are presented from pulpits of faithful congregations, that is, that people need to hear, that people need to respond to that address certain problems in people's lives. And sometimes it seems like it instead simply runs off like water off the proverbial duck's back. You know, it's just so easy to hear the Word of God today where we live. And since I attend the worship service or service of the church regularly, and I hear the gospel preached continually... You know, possibly making it somehow easy to assume that I'm going to heaven. That doesn't follow at all. 
The fact that there's aspirin in the world doesn't mean that your headache is cured. You go to the doctor with some problem, and he diagnoses your situation. He prescribes a remedy on that little piece of paper that looks like hieroglyphics. Can't ever read it. But he prescribes a remedy, and you go ahead and take it to the pharmacy to get that prescription filled. And so the pharmacist fills that thing, and he, he puts it in a bag, and he rings it up, and, he, and, and you, you pay him his money. And on the way out the door, you see a trash can, and you kind of pitch it over there, and you walk out, and you're cured. doesn't work like that. doesn't work that way. You see, the fact is that you must apply the remedy to effect the cure. Just hearing the gospel will not cure the dreaded disease of sin, didn't James say, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only? James 1.22. I remember a fellow, and this is Mark chapter 6, verse 20, where the teaching of Jesus is being proclaimed. And he's being proclaimed through the twelve whom he had chosen and he had sent out. And Herod, hearing about it, said, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. And so he performs these mighty works. And then Mark said in to explain what Herod had done. He had arrested John the Baptist for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, you remember, whom he himself had married, and that was unlawful, and John told him it was unlawful. Well, somebody comes along and says, if John had minded his own business, he wouldn't have lost his head. Friends, John's business was making known to sinners, the means of salvation. John's business was telling people what the Lord wanted men to know. You see, losing his head was incidental. That had nothing to do with the assignment at all. So old John told Herod now that it was unlawful for him to have his brother Philip's wife, and that made Herodias angry. And But the record says that Herod knew that he was a righteous man, and, and, and though he had incarcerated him, he, he kept him safely. He kept him securely. But when he heard him, it perplexed him, and he, he just couldn't get enough of him. He went back, he went back to hear him again, you know, and, and, but he heard him gladly, Scripture says. That's amazing. Herod communed rather frequently with him when he was in prison. And when he heard him, it disturbed his mind. I mean, it perplexed him, and, and he just couldn't get away from it. He went back again and again, and he heard him gladly. And then, of course, you know the story. The daughter of Herodias danced at the birthday of Herod, and before his lords he made her a promise. Anything you want up to the half of my kingdom, I'll give it to you. Well, she went out and inquired of her mother. Came back and said, bring me the head of John the Baptist in a, on a platter, a charger. Herod was sorry? No, no, the record said he was exceeding sorry. Oh, but for the sake of those that sat at meat with him. Mm, he lacked some backbone. But the record says he was exceeded. But for the sake of that oath that sat at meat with him, he could have said, if he had courage, look, when I told you that, you know, you would request to be up to the half of my kingdom, I'll give it. I don't have the right to give you another man's life. Now, you ask me for something I have the right to give you, and my word is good. No, he didn't do that like many today. Too much pride. 
I mean, I can't back down now. I've made a commitment. I mean, I've made a statement like many today. Herod had John beheaded. Oh, but you know and I know that Herod was lost. Oh, but he heard John gladly. And what John said disturbed him. Friends, I find people today that don't hear the truth so gladly and what they hear don't disturb them too much and they think they're Christian. I mean, are we really examining what we hear through personal research and study? I mean, the fervent attitude that, you know, that I'm concerned, my eternal destiny, my soul is at stake. Oh, if we aren't careful, we just kind of thrash it around here during Bible class and on the way out the door kind of pitch it over in the corner and we think we're, you know, everything's okay. Kind of forget about it. What'd you say, James? Wait a minute. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass or a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But he went on to say, but whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Or doing. You see, there's a lot more to justification in the eyes of God than just hearing His Word. You know, this book, being physically comprised of leather, ink, paper, well, you might as well throw it aside for all the good it's going to do you unless and until you reduce its principles and precepts to a way of life. When the Lord said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, John 8, 32, he isn't talking about an intellectual understanding of each word as it falls in sequence to the prior or previous word. He did not mean the ability to quote all or great portions of the word of God. Oh, that's involved. But friends, he's not dealing with simply an intellectual understanding of the teaching found in this book. You see, when the truth makes you free, it's a result of an intimate Knowledge and involvement in my life when the principles of truth so that my conduct is in demonstration of the teaching of this book. You see, when the truth becomes the motivating, dominating, undergirding, supporting factor of my life, then I'm free. Then I'm free. Uh, didn't David said, thy word have I hid on my bookshelf at home? No. Thy word have I hid in my shirt pocket? No. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Psalms 119, verse 11. It's not enough just to hear the word, friends. I need to be busy doing what it says. You know, the Lord really isn't interested in reform. Somebody comes along and says, well, now, wait a minute. We need to reform this and reform that. We need to reform this town. We need to reform this country. And I agree with that in many instances, in many ways. But the Lord isn't really interested in reform. What the Lord primarily is interested in is transformation. Oh, that's a complete change, isn't it? Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable or spiritual service. Uh, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove. What is the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God? Mm. That transformation doesn't happen 
until we apply these principles of truth, exhibiting them, them in our daily thought, speech, and conduct. But let me suggest this. It's not enough in the hearing of God's word, in the teaching of this book, to tremble about it. You see, you and I are immortal creatures, made in the image and likeness of God, able to assimilate evidence and testimony, reach conclusions based thereupon, to act upon one's own volition. The God that is so good to us, who offers so much, who has blessed us beyond man's ability to describe, the one who loves us so much he made provision for our salvation through the sacrificial death of his son. His only begotten son who died in our stead bearing our sins to redeem our souls. That same God has told us there is a hell where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And you and I are immortal. You see there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And very soon all of us will stand before God in judgment. You see, I will spend eternity in either a place of bliss or a place of punishment. It's my choice. God made us that way. He'll never interfere with your ability to choose. But I remember in Acts chapter 24 verse 25, you remember Paul now a prisoner? Standing before Felix the governor. He talked about the weather, the crops, the drought they'd had the year. But no, 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 no. He reasoned of righteousness, of self-control, and judgment to come. And you know what the record said? Felix trembled. He trembled. God's word tells us, friend, there's going to be a judgment. And you know the story of Matthew 25, 31 through 46, the separation of the sheep and the goats. Sheep on the right hand, goats on the left. You know some are going to be on the left, some are on the right. And you know most of them are going to be on the left. Matthew 7, 13, 14. But do you remember what Felix said? Listen to it. Go thy way for now, Paul. When I have a convenient season, I'll call for you. Friends, in the last 2,000 years, since that statement was made, there's never been a convenient season to give your life to the Lord. There'll never be a convenient season to do such. Why? Oh, the devil will see to that. Your own fleshly inclinations and desires will see to that. You see, it's a matter of conviction. It's a matter of standing against the odds. It's a matter of rising up what we know to be negative, destructing, saying by the power of God, here I stand, I believe, and I'm going to obey your will. And I'm going to walk in harmony with that instruction. Felix didn't have that kind of courage. What would you say? Go thy way, Paul. When it's convenient, I'll call for you. Famous last words. You know, friends, and I'm going to wind this lesson up here in just a moment. Friends, our, it's amazing. Our lives are passing with unbelievable swiftness, aren't they? When you practically think about this, to me it's one of the most astounding phenomenons the older I get. I don't care how old you are at this point in this auditorium tonight. In the broad scheme of things, it's only been really a few days since you came into this world. How swiftly the days come and go. And you know, Job said in Job 7, 6, he says, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. And from what I understand, that was in the day when they threw that shuttle through the warp, carrying the thread through the woof. And this, of course, has been greatly improved. 
But the shuttle of the loom traveled so fast through the warp, so rapidly that the eye just got a flash. And my days are speeded up just like that. It's easy to say tomorrow. It's easy to procrastinate. It's the easiest thing in the world to put things off. There's nothing on earth more fatal than than, than the delay in obeying God. Nothing at all. Friends, if we aren't careful, we get too concerned about, you know, too wrapped up in the material things of life. And God blesses us so, doesn't he, with all these material things. But I remember Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes describing the gradual decline, you remember, and the ultimate demise of the physical man. He mentions those things that mankind holds of highest value. Wealth, worldly wisdom, power, pleasure. I mean, he said, whatever's eye desired, he withheld it not from himself. You know how he described it? Like hugging the wind. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, vexation of spirit. Listen to him as he includes in that 13th verse of that 12th chapter. He said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now notice that little word duty is in italics, meaning it's not in the original text. What's that? Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. Friend, if you miss that, you don't know where you came from, where you're going, or what you're doing here in the first place. You see, it's not enough to be good. It's not enough to just have a good conscience. It's not enough to just hear the word of the Lord. And in the hearing of it, though it may make you tremble. Friends, you don't know how much more time you have allotted in this physical life. But even if you had the assurance that you would live a hundred years, why not live it with the peace of mind, the genuine satisfaction and joy and happiness that comes from the promise of heaven to those that faithfully walk with the Lord. One, one more passage and the lesson is yours. Revelation 2 verse 10. You're familiar with it. All the church at Smyrna, they were going through major problems and persecution and keeping it in its reference. Be thou faithful unto death. You see, even the death of martyrdom then. He said, Fear none of the things which thou art about to suffer. Behold, Satan is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tried. And you shall have tribulation ten days. But listen to it. Be thou faithful unto unto death, and I'll give thee the crown of life. Friend, that's a promise from the omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent God. You can count on it. If you're subject to the invitation tonight, if you're here and outside of Christ... What an opportune time to give your life to the Lord. If you believe that He's the Son of God and you're willing to repent, oh, it won't make you perfect. Repentance won't make you perfect. No, no, it's preceded by godly sorrow, followed by reformation of life, but it's making up my mind. I will no longer deliberately, willfully walk in sin or serve Satan. I want to be like the one who died for me outside those ancient walls of Jerusalem to redeem my precious soul. Repent. Be no problem then to confess with your lips what you already believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and then be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're here tonight as a child of God, you desire the prayers of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us pray with you and for you. If we can assist you in any way, why not come as together we stand and sing.